0: Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. Today, I'm really excited because I have Jocelyn Mangan joining me. And honestly, her resume is insane. She's currently the CEO and co-founder of Him for Her, an organization helping to get more women on for-profit boards. She's on a couple of boards of her own, including Papa John's and Chow Now. She was the COO at Snag and also the SVP of products at OpenTable. She also worked at Ticketmaster. And a little fact I dug up that I love, she worked on the Athens Olympics. So Jocelyn, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here, and thanks for having me. So it was really
0: hard to narrow down on one thing to talk with you about, but I've been saving this topic until I could find someone who had just a ton of operational experience because it's something that I hear about so much. It's sort of a buzzword in product, but I wanted to get your take on it, and that's product discovery. So if we could just start somewhere, when you think about product discovery, you know what does that mean to you, and then we'll kind of go from there.
1: Yeah, so I think what product discovery means to me is getting your ideas of what to do for your customers outside of your building. And I say that meaning getting to know who the customers are that you have, the customers that you want, and getting to know what they need and what they want in strategic ways without having to ask them directly.
0: Okay, so what's an example of the not having to ask them directly?
1: That's a great question. So... It's really trying to understand their behavior, especially if you work in product. I think you so much about what to do and what to build and how to measure its success. And oftentimes it's easy to forget about people's behavior in the human world and how we're building products to really cater to that behavior and getting to understand someone's behavior is really more of a conversation and a story based method than it is on would you click this button or that button.
0: Right, so this is more generative than sort of confirmation testing a prototype.
1: Right, which are both important, but I think they serve different purposes. One is really trying to generate hypotheses of getting to that next step, which is where those hypotheses that are, geared from those stories and from those human behavior conversations, you're now understanding what people want in a place where you can build something that then you can go and do iterative testing on as well.
0: So one of the things that I talked about, I think it was with Marty Kagan with, was that product teams aren't doing enough discovery or that we're not doing it in the right way. So when you're working in products or you're working with product teams, how do you help them understand what good looks like for discovery?
1: So I uh, totally agree with Marty. And Marty is a lot of how I've formed my opinions through a product through the years. And what I like about working with him is that he works across teams and across companies and across the world. So a lot of what he learns almost seems to be truth because it's not based in a single company. Mm-hmm. I think the, the reason people don't do enough discovery Is there's so much pressure internally from the business to deliver and to deliver product and to deliver results. And oftentimes discovery is seen as a soft thing to do when in fact the more Thorough your discovery is, the more effective your delivery is. And I think that's a hard thing to teach organizations. And so, what I often suggest is if it's an organization that's really starting from scratch to get help, Marty is a great source of help in Silicon Valley Product Group. And he didn't pay me and say that. The <laughs> uh, other person that I've used in multiple companies is Teresa Torres of Product Talk. And the thing I like about using Teresa is discovery is almost like working out. Like you have to do it three times a week to see results. And it's not something you can do once a month. And I think understanding that learning how to do that does require sometimes a coach, sometimes some support, and sometimes some metrics.
0: A point you made earlier I want to dig into a little bit, and that's there's so much pressure to deliver. When you were leading at places like OpenTable, how did you help foster that like time for discovery in your teams?
1: OpenTable was an interesting place for discovery because we we often made the mistake of pretending we were our user because mm. internally, we all love restaurants. Internally, we all used our product. And what was sometimes hard to imagine is what it was like to use our product in Houston, Texas, and not walking down the busy streets of San Francisco. So, you know, discovery in some ways at OpenTable was even harder because you almost felt less of a need to have to do it because we thought we knew our customers so well because we were quote unquote our customer, which in fact, of course we were, but um, as a worldwide company, no, you're not. You need to understand what it's like to use your product in Tokyo, what it's like to use your product in Houston. At Open Table, I credit a lot of our discovery work to our design team. We brought in a design team that was very forward in their thinking on design thinking, on customer discovery, and they really came in with the tools and the abilities to get out there and understand behavior, and they were very skilled in bringing that back into the executive team in a way where everybody understood their learnings. They did that with our payments product. They did that with our international markets. They did that with our core product. And so, at that company, really, we benefited from some of our leadership, which was based in IDEO and some of the kind of you know key design thinking firms. It's not a job. It was a little different. And it was an older company who really, you know, had been with their segment for many, many years, almost two decades. And so it was a little bit harder to convince people that they needed to, quote unquote, discover what their customers needed. And that's when we brought in Teresa. And she really acted as a coach and would work with a single tribe or a single sprint team and really get them going. And then that sprint team who got really good at discovery became an advocate and a role model for the other teams as well.
0: So then it sounds like the sort of output of that is that those teams were able to bring insights and understanding of the customer back up to the executive level in a way that was sort of helping show the value of that work.
1: Yes. Although when I say the executive level, I want to be careful because I often think that's another mistake is that you have to go through the executive gate to get things done. And I think what we really try to do at several of these companies and what we continue to do as I work with other companies is build the experiments and the testing and the discovery around the metrics and the impact you're trying to create. Because the truth is one of my favorite quotes from Marty's organization is. 50% of ideas are wrong and 50% of first iterations are wrong. And so if we believe that to be true, what that means is there should be a little bit of less pressure on what you get quote-unquote approval to test and more pressure on the hypothesis that are forming those ideas and pressure on the speed at which you're able to test and iterate. So that's an often part of the equation that gets missed. And sometimes it has real limitations that are technical. If there's infrastructure or platforms who are not able to be agile in their testing, because time you're really trying to save is the engineer's time you don't really want to build something that's not going to work because it's a waste of time and it's hard to undo. And so there's many things that can help you avoid that. One is proper discovery where at least you know what's coming into the funnel to be built is built on some pretty strong hypothesis based in customer behavior. The second is, is if it gets built, it gets built in an agile way so that if the first iteration is wrong, you can get to the second iteration quickly.
0: So that actually, that's perfect because that, the question I was going to ask you was, we're, Relatively new to goal setting at Drift, we're a startup, and we've been thinking. You know, okay, we want all of our teams to be focusing on outcomes that they're going to drive for the customer for the business. You know, we don't want to hand down a roadmap. We know that ideas are wrong, all that kind of stuff. But then the teams enter into the quarter and they say, okay, I know that this is the thing that I want to create for our business or our customer. But then, like, how much time do they spend on discovery? What does a good discovery process look like when they're sort of saying? I want to jump into building.
1: So it's a lot more than you'd imagine. And I think that's why Marty says teams aren't doing enough because sometimes what happens is when you are spending time on discovery, it can be seen as kind of the soft thing to do inside the building. But the truth is, is the more discovery on the front end, the more time is saved on the back end. Because imagine you don't do any discovery and you're just constantly Having your engineers build your ideas in that 50-50 world, well, guess what? Now you're spending the most expensive time, the engineer's time, and now it's in your code. So it's not just on a piece of paper. It's actually something that's live in your product, or if it's a physical product, either way. And that's so much harder to undo when it's wrong. I do believe that there's a lot more on the front end than most people anticipate. It's something that needs to be a weekly cadence, but it's also something that builds into a flow. You know, I mean, it's not to say there's never anything in build mode, it's just a cycle. The stuff in build mode should be coming from the discovery cycle before. It's kind of like, while that stuff's in build mode, the next cycle of discovery discovery needs to begin.
0: So when you're starting that next cycle of discovery, we believe pretty strongly that we want to have, it, it's not just, you know, PMs and designers off doing, doing that discovery alone. We want to include our engineering team as well because they're such good problem solvers. How have you seen team, teams balance that kind of thinking when an engineering team might be responsible for delivery, but also want to be and should be involved in discovery?
1: So I also agree, the best idea, some of the best ideas come from engineers. And in my career, I think the reason I actually liked being a product manager was the engineers that I got a chance to work with and how Much smarter they made me at the business and the product and everything around it. So I think leaving out the engineers is a huge mistake. I think how to involve them really should be up to the engineering lead partnering with the product lead and the design lead, and I would include the marketing lead. And increasingly, I would include the marketing lead because I do agree the more people in discovery, all that really means is everybody's gaining the benefit of what you're learning from your own customers. And quite frankly, what we did at some of our organizations is we had forums to share that beyond just product marketing, engineering, and design. Because the truth is, C-level people are interested in that and customer support people are interested in that. And pretty much anyone in the organization is interested in understanding what you're learning from your customers. So we actually had product discovery shareouts that were open to the, um, the company at large. And so trying to figure out a forum for that is also important. So there's two pieces there. One is, how do you engage your cross-functional team in the actual discovery, but also how do you take the great learnings you're getting out of discovery and share those with the company at large?
0: Okay, let's assume that a team, we're super bought in, we're excited, we wanna do more discovery when you've seen teams attack this type of thinking, what are the best types of discovery that you think are the best to start with that give the teams that aha moment that makes them want to do more?
1: I don't think there's just one. There's so many ways to do discovery. I mean, hundred ways to do discovery. So I don't think it's about the method that I've seen ignite teams. What I've seen ignite teams is when they use a method and they learn something they didn't already know. And it's an aha moment. It's like, a, oh, wow, we thought it was all about this. And it's not. It's really about this other thing. And they didn't come up with it themselves. I think that's really when it starts to ignite the team in a positive way. And then those learnings when shared ignite the other teams to want to go and cover those same aha moments.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I'm just thinking of a couple examples in my past where we had shipped something where we thought I used to work at TripAdvisor and we had shipped something and we had some really positive results. And we went and actually talked to a couple of customers. And the reason why that thing was successful was completely outside of anything that we had expected. And it totally it made all of us shift our understanding of what we were doing and why and who our customer was. Mm -hmm. What are the hurdles that you've seen people run into and sort of the biggest fears that people have when they want to spend more time on discovery?
1: So the biggest hurdle is the time. And the biggest hurdle is getting out of delivery mode and carving out the time for discovery and undoing the fear that that means you're not being productive. That is the biggest hurdle. And so one way around that hurdle that we found is actually using discovery metrics. So we actually took our cross-functional team and the tribes and the squads, when we were just getting started, actually measured by team how many discovery hours they were spending. I think we were doing it on a weekly basis. And then we would also measure the discovery iterations. And so you can't change what you don't measure. And so in some ways, just establishing a baseline is a really good lens into what you're doing. And then once you establish that baseline, keeping up how that's progressing, how's your discovery time gaining or is it? And if not, what's keeping you from doing it? And I think having visibility into that is really critical because otherwise it's hard to help those squads and tribes figure out where they're going to get that time or how they're going to get that time. And if it's a kind of a larger hurdle, which is, Executive team lack of understanding of what discovery is and how that contributes to more impactful development, then I would recommend using some external resources whether it's Teresa or Marty or their organization, or by the way, just the articles they write on this, which is all very helpful, to bring that into the room sometimes can be super helpful because then it's just not that one product manager's idea or that one design lead's idea. It really is an organizational truth of what makes impactful product development.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I'm just thinking about teams I've seen and people I've talked to where They want to do this type of work and they think it's going to be valuable, but they have uh, stakeholders or executives or whoever who have very strongly held opinions about the product and who, for better or for worse, think that they know exactly what the team should be doing and sort of how to manage that.
1: I think also if you can take a small team and get started with them, that also works. So as long as everything's metric driven, you can prove whether or not this works. Right. So so people love data because it makes them feel more comfortable, which is why I think we got in the bad habit of roadmaps, because we felt like if we completed a to do list, it looked like we were getting something done. But you know, we also had opportunities to take those red maps and look at them retroactively and ask the question, how impactful was the work? And the answer is often quite different from what you expected it to be. So if you can't you know, do a broad-based change, the suggestion would be take a small squad who's really hyper-interested in discovery and just get them started. Make sure it's metric-driven. Say, just be clear, this quarter we're trying to move this metric And then get them going and then see how it goes. And don't give up too soon because like any new muscle, it does require kind of constant attention, constant practice. But when you start to see those aha moments, when you start to see your metrics move, when you start to see that thing get launched that you wouldn't have known to launch otherwise, then it really will unleash it inside the organization. Also makes a great case study to take if you're trying to do a more broad-based change.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I think getting that first one that works, that surprises people to see it end to end is probably the best thing the teams could do. But one question I wanted to ask you, because since you brought it up, we don't use roadmaps here at Drift either, but that's something that people that I've spoken to through the podcast and elsewhere really struggle with. So when you have run into people and you talk about roadmaps and the pros and cons of them, like how do you describe that?
1: The concept behind the roadmap is needed. And I'll give you an example. I mean, I've worked in marketplace businesses. Where, you know, on the consumer side, you're never releasing a roadmap really to a consumer. But when you're a B2B product and you have clients that use your product and want to know what's coming, you do as a business have an obligation to share that with them. So one of the things that we trialed to some success was instead of giving them a roadmap of features, which is what they're used to receiving, and then success looks like we delivered the feature or we didn't instead what it should look like, is did that feature help the problem? And so that's what we ended up doing is we ended up saying, okay, let's review the roadmap and let's understand what are the problems for this client customer base we're actually trying to solve. And instead of giving them a list of features, Why don't we give them a list of the opportunities, struggles that they're dealing with that we're actually trying to address? So the difference would be, we'd say, this quarter, we're addressing this area of friction, this area of opportunity and we stated it as more of a problem statement and a solution statement and where the features were in support of that and then then you can kind of use that as a roadmap because a lot of times client you want your clients to kind of approve where your focus is and when you when you talk about it at this lens one it's more relatable right i mean a blue button means nothing but removing friction from the purchase path to enable more customer flow is something they understand, right? And so we basically took the feature list and brought it up a level to a problem list or an opportunity list, made sure that we got buy-in on what opportunities we saw and by definition, therefore, what opportunities we weren't addressing and why we weren't addressing those. And it was, a, I think, an easier conversation for this. Oftentimes, the friction here is the sales team and the product team. What does the sales team telling the clients they're going to get or not get, for example. And really, everybody has the same goal, right? Whether you're a salesperson or product person or a client, you just want a successful guest experience, customer experience, and the revenue that generates from those experiences. And so it's really about reframing the roadmap versus saying all of it's broken. The only thing that really is broken is the feature to-do list, The spirit of being able to predict what you're going to work on and tell people what you're going to work on is really is a business obligation.
0: I would imagine that the conversations you're able to have with your clients when you talk about those problems and those opportunities is probably much more valuable in and of itself than saying, "Okay, we're going to build these three things this quarter.
1: Exactly. And if you're metrics driven and impact driven, you can go back to them and say, remember, the reason we were focusing on this opportunity was to increase conversion rate. And we're happy to report that two quarters later, our conversion rates move from X to Y. You can still have a very specific business result conversation with them, but it's based in the problem space versus the feature.
0: Okay, thank you. This is amazing. So I want to switch gears just a little bit and ask you a question that's kind of on my mind as I'm hearing you. Now that you're not directly in product anymore, from my understanding, and you're focused mostly on being on boards and working with your organization,
1: Correct. And building a new company. So I'm more in an entrepreneurial seat and I'm working with product teams. But in fairness, the concept of him for her was done through product discovery.
0: Yes. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about that. Like, How did that come along and how are you using your product background as you're A, starting a new company, but also B, as you're on boards yourself?
1: Well, so I actually retained Teresa as my personal product discovery coach. What I wanted to do was start a... So Pempera was born out of a fellowship that I'm a part of, out of the Aspen Institute. And as part of that, you're tasked with starting a venture. And so I knew I wanted to help women at work, which is a really big category, right? It's a perfect area for product discovery because you have to take it through what she calls the opportunity tree. And a lot of opportunities I could have gone down. I could have helped women who um, step out of the workplace and want to get back in. I could have helped women in college. You know, there's all sorts of ways I could have gone. And it was through the product discovery that I got to him for her on a couple of different friends. One, at the time I started, I wasn't myself on any boards. I knew I'd be really passionate about an area that I myself needed to learn about. So, you know, I now sit on two boards but by no means am a board expert. And so that was one piece. But the other piece was I did a bunch of product discovery interviews to get to the idea. And I knew that just from a numbers, a data perspective, one in five directors is a woman. That means four out of five are men. My whole career has been spent working for and with men to very positive support and sponsorship. So When I sought out to solve the problem of how to get more women on boards, I naturally turned to how do we partner with men? So I spent probably the better part of a year interviewing men to understand how they think. And again, this was story-based learning. It wasn't how do I get a woman on a board? It was how do you find your last board member? And story after story after story, you garner some truths. And two truths that I got to were one. The men I interviewed wanted to help and they didn't know how. And two, um, most of the time they found their last board member through a word of mouth network. It was a dinner. It was a small thing. It was a, you know, basically a small setting word of mouth. Um, interaction. So him for her is exactly that, which is it's now become more than just a dinner series, but our Trojan product is a dinner series. And it's a small setting where CEOs and board ready women can interact in the way that what I found in product discovery, they were already interacting. I think one thing that's really hard in product is to change behavior. It's much easier to Make the current behavior more effective or faster, whatever it is. I mean, think about even Open Table, people were already calling to make reservations. But what Open Table was really removed the friction between the person and the phone and the not getting an answer on the other line. So, this is kind of a similar concept, which the big picture is you can use product discovery across many, many different things. And I think it's a skill for life versus a skill for just a product leader.
0: One thing I'm curious about is. What are you, as you're on this adventure with him for her, like, what are you reading and listening to that's helping you with that or helping you in your day to day?
1: So a lot of what I'm reading and listening to is in the entrepreneur world, which is really exciting for me because I was what was coined an entrepreneur. I was brought into other people's companies when they were at some scale to make them even more scaled and more successful, which I truly enjoyed. Never really put myself in the entrepreneur seat. My favorite book that I just finished related to that is Blitzscaling by Reid Hoffman, who has been a host at one of our Him for Her dinners. And... Um, what I liked about Blitz Scaling is it really helps me take the concept of my company into really business models. There's parts of the book where he talks about how to scale your team, and that's the part that I've actually lived. But what I'm learning so much about is how to take this product market fit that we found with him for her and apply some of the just true business model thinking to it. And to also understand, you know, scaling is all about growth, how to make sure that you're looking out for the growth of your business and you're not going to remain small and you're not going to get over, overtaken. And so I've really enjoyed that.
0: I find that I keep turning back to that as our company goes through different growth stages because there's always something new that I can learn as things change, sort of in our situation.
1: Yeah, and that's the part I have lived. As soon as something was true at Open Table, it wasn't true anymore. As soon as something was true at Snaggy Job, it wasn't true anymore. And so I think change also, the important thing about getting used to understanding and acknowledging change is that change is uncomfortable for everybody, whether it's positive or negative. And I think mistakenly, we anticipate that negative change is going to be hard and that positive change is just always good. And the reality is, is all change is hard. And most of the time, we're not communicating well enough around change, positive or negative, which just causes so much problems internally with, with staff and with team members. And so I think I've learned so much about managing through change, some from failure, some from success. But I don't think it's something you can ever truly master.
0: I mean, I've been at the startup for over a year and a half, and I feel that. I felt that at the beginning, and I feel today. And it's just been fascinating to see it play out. Even That's one of those pieces of advice that people give you, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I get it. It'll be fine. But then it's still just as true, even though you're more experienced at it.
1: Well, and I think the piece that we often forget to do is the why, why are we changing this way? And the reason we forget is usually the people instigating the change already know why. And they falsely assume that everybody else does too. So most people get more comfortable with change if they know why it's happening and what it means to them. And that's a pretty simple thing. We always forget part of it. <laughs> Either we forget to say what it means to them or we forget to tell them why we're doing it.
0: Or I think also something that I've seen and I'm definitely responsible for. Is we assume that people heard us when we did say it or that they understood what we meant, which is something that's also not always the case.
1: Yeah, it requires over communication. If you think you've done a good job, you should stop and just do it again.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that brings me to my last question, which is what's one or two pieces of advice that you would give to someone who's sort of building a career and product looking back on your career?
1: So I would say, looking back on my career, I can't think of a better discipline for business. If you love business, products are such a great way to get to the heart of business because it's cross-functional, because you, you have to become good at learning about all the other functions because they all rely on you for some reason. And I think the other reason and the piece of advice is that is product is at the center of many other organizations. And the more you can reach across the aisle and partner with them, then that does not always mean coming to consensus or agreeing. But it does mean being diplomatic in your dealings with other departments and truly understanding those other departments and educating them about the why of what you're doing, right? You, know, you never want to be the product leader. We're doing this because Jocelyn thinks it's a good idea. So I'd, I'd say that that would definitely be a piece of advice that I would give and stick with it. It's such a great field. It's changing a lot. And then the other thing I would just say and plug for engineers is never forget how valuable getting the opportunity to work with engineers is being able to learn from them and engage them in the, the groups and the processes is key to success. And part of why I enjoyed working in products so much is getting to work with engineers and designers.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that's probably my favorite part, too, especially when you get to work with a team that pushes you to be better and challenges you in a way that no one else can challenge you.
1: Agreed. Agreed.
0: Awesome. Well, Jocelyn, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And yeah, everyone, give us a review. Let us know what you think. And send me any feedback. Maggie at drift.com. Thanks.
1: Thanks for having me.